Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On this week's programme, the story of a man considered by many to be a brilliant thinker, but whose spirit was broken by censure from Rome. And can science and spirituality mix? I'll talk with author and biologist Dr. Rupert Sheldrake on his latest book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. But first... Now, Father, Sean Fagan, your book is called Does Morality Change? I suppose the first question has to be, what do we mean by morality? In shorthand, you might say that morality is about the responsible use of freedom, but uh, that doesn't speak to people. And so uh, the book is really about the phenomenon of change and how the Christian community has developed. For example, the basic things about be loving, be kind, be merciful, be just, these are unchanged and they will always, they're absolutes in a sense. He was considered a brilliant theologian and thinker, and he brought great distinction to Ireland. The words of former President Mary McAleese, talking about Father Sean Fagan, whose long and illustrious priestly career was, according to Miss McAleese, blighted in latter years by being silenced by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Part of the censure prevented him mentioning the sanctions and was only on his death that his close friend, theologian Angela Hanley, was to tell his story in her new book, What Happened to Father Sean Fagan. And Angela's here with us this evening. Angela, who was Father Sean Fagan? Father Sean Fagan was an Irish moral theologian. He was a Marist priest. He was born in Mullingar, County Westmeath, and he taught, he was a teacher, he was a lecturer, he was a very pastoral priest. His mission in life was essentially to help people understand they're made in the image and likeness of God and that they are loved as they are. And that nearly would sum up Sean's whole mission in life, to affirm people, to mediate God's love and to help people understand, you know, where they were, where they stood in all their difficulties, that they were loved. And it's a pretty powerful message. When did you first come across him? In 1998, my husband was a librarian in Athlone at the time and I had my own personal carrier of books to and from. So one day he brought this book home, Does Morality Change, by this chap called Father Sean Fagan, whom I'd, at that stage I hadn't heard of. Um, other people would have, who were a bit older than me, let me hasten to add, would have known him from the likes of The Late Late Show and uh, Bunny Carr's programme and Andy O'Mahony, those programmes. He was quite active in the 1970s in Ireland, right? Anyway, this book was brought home and Garrod said to me, he had remembered when Sean's previous book was in the library, has since changed. That was 1977. And it was an extremely popular book in the library. It was always going out. So Garrod had said to me that he has written this book and it's a new book. It was only published the previous year. So at that stage, I had had enough of the church. Quite frankly, I was making my own preparations to leave spiritually. Um, I had stayed with it for our children's sake, but our children were teenagers by then and they didn't want to have any part of it. So I had decided, no, I never, I didn't feel I belonged. And the older I was getting and the more questioning I was becoming, the colder and colder a place it seemed to be. So anyway, I read this book and I just found it amazing. I just felt it was the first time in my adult life I was been spoken to as an adult, not patronised, not spoken down to. 
And it just made so much sense. And it chimed with my experience, even as a parent. Um, as I said, there would have been teenagers at that stage. My own experience of life. And I just thought it was amazing. So I did something I've never done before. I wrote a letter to thank him. I wrote a care of the publishers. A one pager, just thank you very much. And I found this amazing and that I was on the cusp of leaving, but you've given me something to think about. And within three days, a package came back, a very nice letter and enclosures, uh, articles he had photocopied, um, none his own at that stage, but just he just said things you might find helpful. And it just grew from there. There was a correspondence weekly for 12 months and he used to write, give me articles. I would write back commenting on them. And where was your study of theology at this point? Uh, nowhere, because um, I live in Athlone and there was no uh, access to theology there. The theology was been taught in places like Dublin and Limerick and Cork, um, but that was really it. So if you weren't in some of the larger metropolitan areas, you you didn't get it. But uh, as luck or shall we say providence should have it, the Irish Dominicans started their programme the in theology, uh, distance learning, uh, the Priory Institute, just kind of a, in the about 2002, I think it actually started. And uh, but I had had an informal mentoring with Sean in theology for we'd said the two and a half years previously. So when this opened up, I mean, it was a dream come true to me. I hit the ground running. I had such an incredible start. What was the quality of debate that you had with Sean? Oh, no holes barred. Everything was up for discussion. I mean, there was truly not any area that wasn't discussed. Everything from, you know, social justice, poverty, economics, morality, you know, the justice and how justice tied into morality. Um, his area was sexual morality. And I mean, that led, that was interesting at times. And I was bringing my experience as a parent to it as well. Quite different, you know, as a woman, as someone in a relationship. And as a parent, so I had was bringing something to the discussion too. And one of Sean's great, great gifts was he was a very good listener. Were you aware at the time of the conflict that was happening in the background and the fact that he had come to the attention of the conference in Rome? Not, not for, I'd say, the first two and a half years. I wasn't. And just one day he kind of half hinted at something. And of course, my ears pricked up and I said, wait now, what's that? What did you say? And he told me because, you see, he wasn't supposed to talk about this. But he felt at that stage confident that I would listen to it in the way he was giving it to me and that I wouldn't betray him. What had, what had happened to him? Uh, his book, Does Morality Change, was delated, as the word they use, was reported to the Vatican as not being in keeping with church teaching. And the Vatican then, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, sent it to be examined, apparently. Now, all Sean was ne never told who his accuser was or anything like that. So then he got a document, it was about... 11 pages long telling him how he was failing so 
he, and it wasn't, I mean, I've seen it. Uh, Sean sent it to me. And my feeling when I read through these, they're called observations. And when I read all the observations, I was saying, this is not the book I read. This is not what I took out of Dora's morality change. I mean, they were implying that in some ways that Sean was saying, you know, your conscience just should dictate what you do. And I won't say, I, mean, I suppose it's a bit unfair to say, well, anything goes was nearly what they were implying. No, they didn't say that, but that was nearly the implication. And they were saying, no, 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 you know, we write the documents, you're, you know, the, you're in conscience to be informed by the documents and that kind of thing. I mean, their arguments were a bit, I think, unfair because they took lines out of context. I mean, here's one, for instance, Sean makes the point of saying that you cannot use the Bible for concrete uh, answers, for moral dilemmas that we'd say appear in the 20th century as it was then, and that we'd say books written back first century or first, second century AD, that they can't give you concrete answers to dilemmas, moral dilemmas that are happening now. But they implied that Sean was saying that, well, you can't get any moral direction from the Bible. That's what they implied in theirs. Now, only the page before he said that, he was saying, well, the Bible is very important. You know, we get a lot from it. it is, you know, there's guidance. Uh, it's it's our, you know, foundational scripture. And it's, I suppose, what gave unity to the early church. You know, they had something that they could uh, all relate to. So he had actually spent a page and a half or thereabouts talking about the importance of scripture. And then he goes on to say, but... You cannot hope to get an answer to every moral dilemma directly from Scripture. And I mean, he's absolutely right. I mean, otherwise you're falling into the trap of literalism. But he contextualised it. And that was one of Sean's phrases, context is everything. But he had contextualised it. Now, in one of the accusations was, more or less, he dismissed Scripture as a source of morality. And that was a very unfair reading of, of what he had. But I think uh, as as a, a member mm. of the faith, mm. as, as a mm. clergyman, he would have expected that he would have been, you know, called to task or brought brought to to order if there was something that he was saying that mightn't be, you know, part of mm. the doctrine, and and that they were entitled to say, you know, oi. Mm. Uh, yes, in principle, Sean wouldn't have difficulty with about that because Sean was uh, always able to defend himself. He was a very well-read man theologically and he could defend himself and back up his arguments. And in principle, he wouldn't have had an issue. But I think part of the difficulty was now, I mean, and he replied to these with arguments as to why what he was being accused of wasn't so. He never got a response to that document. He never got a reaction to his counter-arguments. Did they not have any? So he wouldn't have had a difficulty with that, but he had... He really didn't say anything 
much in does morality change that he hadn't been saying all his priestly life. So, Angela, the, mm. the, the first book in the 1970s mm. drew a little bit of attention to him. And, and Well, there was no bother with that. I mean, it, it was highly successful and it sold thousands of copies. I think overall, something like 65,000 now, if my memory serves me correctly. It went to several the issues. The title of that was? Uh, Has Sin Changed? Mm. So that, that was a runaway success. As you say, mm. that didn't get him into much trouble. But Not- on a subsequent reprint, the world fell on his head. Now, well, yes, that brings us up to 2008. He decided to look at it, basically do another edition uh, with inclusive language, broaden out on a few issues, particularly the clerical sexual abuse and also on um, the place of people in the LGBT community in the church. So he just went ahead and worked on it and did that. And there wasn't a word, there was no word from anywhere about it because, I mean, he was just working quietly away. But what happened was in July 2008, there was a letter in the Irish Times. Uh, Some uh, gentleman was talking about the shortage of priests and Sean Pinchon, he never started a correspondence, but he would always reply to something. And Sean saw that as a way of reaching out to people as well. And so Sean wrote about the whole thing about the shortage of priests. And he was talking generally about, well, you know, that maybe we have to look at things differently. And as a by the way, as I think just one sentence in the letter, he mentioned the ordination of married men and ordination of women. That's all. He wasn't advocating for it particularly. He was just saying, well, these are answers to the shortage of ordained priests. And basically the house fell on him. Uh, There was a, a letter. Uh, his su- religious superior was called in to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and basically he was told to tell Sean to write to the Times and withdraw his comment. And Sean was too savvy. I mean, Sean was, he knew it would be a desperate thing to do. And he wrote back and said, sorry, I can't do that. In conscience, I can't do that. Because A, he meant what he said, but he also felt it wouldn't do the church any good to have him do that. And the book then was out and then there was that really created a storm. But all of this is happening mm. in a in a process, in a system where mm. obedience is a fundamental. Well, obedience, well, there's the thing. Obedience to whom or to what? Uh, I have discussed this with people in religious life and essentially it's obedience to the gospel. That's what the first obedience is to the gospel. And if Sean Fagan was anything, he was obedient to the gospel. What seems to have drawn mm. your attention to this mm. and has resulted in you writing the book mm. was that the element of censure, the idea yes. that it is only after his death that mm. you can even talk about this. Yes. What happened there? Well, the reason he couldn't say anything was because when he was censured and silenced, he was told he wasn't to tell anybody about it and that he wasn't to contact the media about it. And if words leaked out, even without his active involvement, if word leaked out that they had censured him, 
they would have him dismissed. So that's why, I mean, Sean was a very brave man and he didn't scare easily. But the thought of actually being laicised and dismissed from priesthood, I mean, the shame of that was almost beyond what he could bear. So he just had, he and I had so many discussions. He just like that, he said to me, when I'm dead, maybe you could find a way to tell the story. What was the human cost to Father Sean Fagan with this? It was huge. He had a man in his early 80s at that stage being told that potentially he could be dismissed from the vocation that he had given his whole life to. I mean, he went in at 18. And that he would be dismissed from the Marist congregation. Essentially, he'd be rendered homeless. Now, one hopes the Marist would have done right by him, but that's not the point. That is not. It is the principle of a thing. Do you tell a man who's given 60 years of service that suddenly he is worth nothing? I think the injustice in that is just breathtaking. What was the effect on his mental health? I would... It was significant. Now, Sean was an extremely strong person and Sean used to spiritual direction himself. He'd studied psychology and so he would even help people with counselling and he had done over the years and people found him wonderful. Um, You know, they found him very consoling. Um, I felt that the cost was huge to him, that his focus in life kind of narrowed down to this issue. Um, at times he was quite unwell. He, I mean, before that, there was a litany of stress illnesses that he had, like from uh, in the 2000s, right up along. Um, and there were times he used to say to me that uh, sometimes, you know, I, I wish I could go to bed and not wake up. And sometimes he'd say, sometimes I feel very strongly towards suicide but um you know knowing you know knowing Sean that that was an expression of his frustration rather than any expression of intent to action and to hear someone like him saying something like that I mean it was profound it gave some insight into the sort of mental anguish this caused him I mean it called into being everything he was and made it seem as if he was nothing. Theologian Angela Hanley, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Angela's book, What Happened to Father Sean Vegan, is published by Columba Press. Well, next this evening, what is the spiritual side of sport and what can we learn from animals and fasting and why do spiritual practices work? Some of the chapter headings in a new book from author and biologist Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. His follow-up volume to Science and Spiritual Practices is Ways to Go Beyond and Why. And Dr. Sheldrake is with me in the studio. Rupert, welcome to the programme. More accurately, welcome back. You were with us a year ago on the programme when we talked about your book, Science and Spiritual Practice. And you introduced us at that stage to a number of factors which you said that even if you weren't religious, that if you practice these, they would have an impact. That's right. And I think that it's now very clear that a lot of spiritual practices are beneficial and they're available to lots of people. If you take meditation, there's now an enormous amount of evidence that meditation 
lowers blood pressure, reduces stress, helps people be less depressed, um, and makes people feel more connected. Um, and millions of people do it who are not religious. So you've come back now with a sequel, and as a result of the sequel, we're looking at seven more. Why, why was the first of all, a need for the sequel, and what, what was the driver behind it for you? Well, there are many spiritual practices, um, and when I'd done seven in my first book, I realized there were a lot that I think are very important that I wanted to discuss, and so that's why there's a second book. I'm stopping here. I mean, <laughs> I, there won't be a third one with seven more. Uh, but this is uh, only covers some of the many spiritual practices, some I don't discuss in either of these books, like Tai Chi and uh, and, and yoga itself, for example. And the title of the book is Ways to Go Beyond. Beyond what? Beyond our normal state of mind or consciousness. And um, what I really mean is ways in which we connect with something greater than ourselves. And most spiritual practices are about connecting with something bigger than ourselves a form of consciousness greater than our own, a sense of participation in something greater than ourselves, like the whole of nature or part of nature or a group. I mean, in a, Or God. Or God. I mean, the ultimate connection, the ultimate beyond is God. And there's, or whatever one chooses to call God. I mean, some people prefer the all or the ultimate or whatever. I'm perfectly happy with the word God. So for you, when you find yourself uh, in practicing, I'm, I'm sure many of these particular things, where does it bring you to? If, you, if you're practicing, you know, the idea of fasting or the power of prayer or, or, or even the meditation or singing and chanting, which you talked about previously, where does it bring you personally to? Well, prayer, for example, is a daily practice. I meditate in the mornings, I pray in the evenings. Um, I think prayer and meditation bear uh, complementary to each other. Meditation is like withdrawing from the concerns of the world, withdrawing from your own thoughts, trying to go beyond or let go of absorption in thoughts. Whereas prayer moves in the opposite direction. You start with a connection with the spiritual source. All prayers begin with an invocation, like Hail Mary, Our Father. Um, and then with that spiritual source, uh, the thoughts and intentions are directed outwards towards problems in the world or things you want to pray about, protection, healing, and so forth. Um, so personally, I find these practices in my own life are just an essential part of the way I live. I, and I fast every year during Lent, um, which I find is a very helpful practice. And it's very good for health as well. There's a lot of evidence that fasting is very beneficial uh, for health. So I do it in Holy Week personally, and four days or so, just water and tea. Um, and so I, it fits into a spiritual liturgical calendar. At the same time, it's a health practice. It doesn't have to be either or. I think it's both. So it's based in some form of wisdom. What can we learn from animals? Well, that's one of the subjects I discuss in my new book. And I think one of the things we can learn from animals is being in the present. Because we have minds that have discursive, chattering minds, you know, worries, anxieties, fears. What the regions of the brain that do this are now known. That's called the default mode network. And this becomes active in most people when they're not doing anything very much, this internal dialogue. We sit and worry, we fret. We sit and worry. Animals, mm. as far as we know, don't do that. And if a cat's sitting on your lap while you stroke it and purring, it's totally in the present. It's enjoying being where it is, warm and being stroked and purring. And 
if you can just enter into that spirit of things, the cat can bring you into the present because that's where it is. And if a dog's sort of excitedly dropping a ball or a stick at your feet and wanting you to throw it for it, uh, it can draw you completely into the present where it is now. It Mm. wants to play, it's having fun. Uh, Animals uh, bring us into the present, and I think it's one of the things we learn from them, how to be in the present. I'm intrigued by a chapter with the title The Spiritual Side of Sports. Um, Sometimes people refer to sports stadiums as the new cathedrals and the practice of following a a team, and they might get carried away a little bit with the analogy. What have you done with it? Well, I mean, that's certainly part of it, but uh, I think what's most interesting to me about sports is the way they bring you into the present. Uh, people live in a distracted world, iPhones, social media. But as soon as you're in in a game, you have to be present or else you can't play it. If you're skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour and you go around a corner and it's a cliff, if you're not paying attention, you go over the cliff. Um, I think that's one reason dangerous sports are so popular. And in fact, uh, an American business friend of mine um, told me when he was most busy, he tried meditation, it didn't work, his mind was constantly active. But he's a, a mountaineer. He's a, by the time he was 50 feet up a rock face, he was totally in the present. You can't be anywhere else. You can't be anywhere else. Mm. And that, I think, is why completely unacknowledged and under the radar, I think in the modern world, sports are the principal way in which a lot of people come into a sense of presence. Finally, towards the end of the book, you make reference to the idea of being kind. Well, that's because I think all these different spiritual practices, if they're done just for their own sake, um, can be selfish. You know, you could meditate, you could feel calmer, you could feel you're getting your job done better, less frazzled by modern urban life. Uh, But unless it benefits other people and the world at large, then it could be a purely selfish pursuit. So I think that the, the point about doing spiritual practices in the context of religious framework is that provides a context for doing it within a greater community and for the greater good. And if one's not doing it within a religious context, then the discipline of simply being kind is is the framework within which I think it's best to do all these things because then it relates to other people and to the wider world, and it's not just about me. Rupert Sheldrake, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. A pleasure to be with you, Michael. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. We're back with you next week at the same time from our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, and from me, Michael Cummins. Good night.